0: We had the incredible privilege of going on a special tour here in the land of Israel with tour guide Aaron Schaefer. And we were able to go see one of the most authentic sites there is, Manoah's altar. Actually, before we talk about the exciting stops on today's agenda, let's go ahead and recap a bit of what we learned last time. As tour guide Aaron explained, Manoah was Samson's father. Yes, that's Samson from the book of Judges in the Hebrew Bible, the one who tore a lion to pieces with his bare hands, the one who lost all his supernatural strength to a woman, Delilah, and also the one who was captured by the Philistines and died when he called upon the Lord for strength to topple the house of the Philistines with both him and the Philistines in it. You'll remember that we had the opportunity to see an altar that Samson's father built before Samson was even born. And it's the altar the angel of the Lord ascended into heaven from. Yeah, that makes this altar quite an archaeological discovery. And tour guide Aaron, who really has a good sense of what's authentic and what's not here in Israel, truly believes that that altar is indeed the altar mentioned in the book of Judges. But unlike most of the other sites we've visited here in Israel, there weren't tour buses all over, or a nice visitor's area, or even a sidewalk to the altar— It's literally in an industrial park. And each time I've been back here, the modern buildings get closer and closer to this piece of remarkable history. It's sad to say, but I'm glad we saw it when we did. I always hope it will be standing for generations to come, but you never know. Now, tour guide Aaron read to us from Judges chapter 13, the chapter in that book where Noah's altar comes up. I won't reread it, but let me just refresh your memory. Basically, the nation of Israel was in the middle of one of their cycles where they disobeyed God, God sent someone to rescue them, they repented and were saved, and then they disobeyed once more, starting the cycle all over again. Well, at the time of Samson's birth, the nation of Israel was in a time of disobedience. And the beginning of Judges 13 says that the Lord gave the Israelites into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. But God wasn't going to leave the story there. That's where Samson comes in. Now, the angel of the Lord goes to Samson's parents and tells them that despite the fact that they have been unable to have a child, they are going to have a son who will be a Nazarite and begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So again, back to that cycle that Israel was continually in with God. As Samson's parents talk to the angel of the Lord, Manoah, Samson's father, makes an offering to God on an altar as the angel recommended. At the end of their conversation, the angel of the Lord ascends into heaven from that very altar, as in the altar we saw with our own eyes just a bit ago. It's almost unbelievable to me. Torquai Aaron presented all of the reasons for why the altar we hike to is actually Manoah's altar, so I won't go through those again. But remember, it's extremely likely that we saw a several thousand-year-old altar that the angel of the Lord ascended into heaven from. I know I keep repeating that, but I can't help it. It's too exciting. Maybe because no one knows about this place? You know, whenever I ask people who have been to Israel, so did you see Manoah's altar? They look at me quite strangely. It's certainly not one of Israel's most traveled to locations. But it should be. And in case you can't tell, it's one of my very favorite sites. It feels authentic without all of the gift shops and everything associated with the typical touristy sites. It's just an altar in the middle of nowhere, with a really cool story attached to it. It's really one of the most unique things that we'll ever see on our tour here in the land of Israel. Now, outside of Manoah's altar, which is where we focused our tour with Aaron, Samson himself had quite a unique story. Like I said, before Samson was even born, God told his parents that he had chosen Samson to, as Judges chapter 13 says, Save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And I suppose he did eventually accomplish that goal, but it was certainly not as straightforward as anyone would have liked. Samson did not follow God fully, he made more than a few mistakes. So while he did eventually kill more Philistines by toppling down the pillars of the house than he did in killing during his whole lifetime, the cost was great. I mean, he lost his own life too. Now, the story of Samson really serves as a reminder that even if we have great physical or mental gifts from God, we can never be too sure in ourselves. Samson's weakness was one specific woman, Delilah, and he thought he was stronger than her. Ultimately, Delilah is what prevented him from accomplishing his mission in life. Actually, I like how Samson's father uses that exact word when asking the angel of the Lord about Samson's future before he is born. He asks, and what is Samson's mission? Manoah was asking the right question. It's a question each of us should ask. Why has God placed us on this earth, and what are we to do with our lives? God does have a path set out for each one of us, just as he planned to have Samson save Israel from the Philistines. And here's the best part, something that really encourages me. Because God is sovereign, because he can work his plan out even as human free will seems to mess it up. Well, because of that sovereignty, God still accomplished what he had planned for Samson. But again, it could have gone so much better. Samson could have kept his strength and not been a Philistine prisoner who had his eyes gouged out. So this makes me think about my own weaknesses, things of the flesh that prevent me from accomplishing what God desires for me. And I hope the story of Samson and our visit to Manoah's altar stirs some similar thoughts in you. To sum it up, every time I visit Manoa's altar, I walk away thinking, what is my mission in life and what might prevent me from fulfilling it? By relying on his own strength and believing that nothing could bring him down, Samson met a sad end. So may we, virtual voyagers, learn from his story. May we learn from history. Well, for our next adventure here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, I'm excited to take you to Mount Tabor. Events from both the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, and the New Testament happened there. So while we drive over to Mount Tabor, I'd like to share a bit about that mountain. And yes, I I just said mountain. But the good news is that we will not be hiking it like I did along with my family several years ago. You know, I, I suppose we have time for a story, so sit back and relax. You might find this a little humorous. My family and I were traveling to some New Testament sites with a guide in Israel on our very first tour to this land. Well, this New Testament guide quickly showed that he had little experience and frankly should not be leading tours in Israel. And in fact, we had to fire him as our tour guide on the second of five planned days uh, touring with him. So it was a less than optimal experience. So that's the background. And now you probably have an idea of the ending and should be cued in that this story isn't going to end super well. So anyways, we arrive at the bottom of Mount Tabor with this guide as planned, and we look up, and it's a long way to the top. Now, there's a church at the top that we wanted to get to, we'll be visiting that later on in the tour ourselves, but we were in a bus, and the bus driver that the tour guide had hired said he couldn't take us to the top because the roads were too narrow. Now, this would totally make sense if it were something like a 50-person bus, but this was a smallish 15-passenger van not anything crazy. Anyways, the bus driver leaves us at the bottom, and we all start hiking up this mountain. There are 12 of us total, counting the tour guide, but the tour guide decided that he had already been up to the top of Mount Tabor in the past, and he wasn't going to hike up. Uh, I guess he assumed the people running the church at the top could give us the story of this mountain, so our tour guide literally leaves us and goes and has coffee at the bottom of the mountain with the bus driver. That leaves the 11 of us American tourists on our very first trip to Israel, right? You, you know that's going to end well. And and yes, you'd be correct. We all end up getting separated from each other. Actually, the younger boys, my younger brothers, uh, started going off the beaten path. So instead of using the trail, they just started going through the woods and, and jumping the terraces and immediately we lose track of them. My sister and I decide we need to follow them because we're concerned. We're older than the rest of the boys, and we can just see them falling off the side of the mountain and dying in Israel. Oh, how much my mom would love that. So we start following their path and running through the woods. And yes, I mean running, uh, and we're also jumping the terraces at this point. The boys now realize that they're being chased, which means naturally they begin to run faster, and we can't keep up. At some point, my sister and I lose my brothers, and also my parents we're behind all of us kids and we're taking the trail, as, as good adults do. So the 11 of us are all now separated on a mountain in Israel with our tour guide at the bottom of the mountain drinking coffee. My sister and I begin to cry at this point. I am crying out of emotional turmoil. My sister, on the other hand, had torn a ligament in her hand three months prior and was still in a lot of pain but she had to use it to jump over the terraces and pull herself up the mountain. So she was crying out of emotional turmoil, I'm sure, but also physical pain. I have no idea what the other tourists thought when they saw us running up the side of the mountain. Well, my sister and I make it to the top and expect we'll reunite with our family at some point. But no, we can't find anyone. We're at this amazing biblical site that we'll hear learn about in, in a little bit in a moment, but my sister and I actually never saw anything related to Mount Tabor. We were too distressed to check out the church or go to the lookout point or anything. Honestly, I don't even think it crossed our minds. We're panicking. Finally, my mom comes up to us. That's at least a start to finding everyone. And although we couldn't find my brothers at first, they soon come running up to us too. And they're laughing and thinking this is the best part of our two-week trip to Israel. Well, I'm just sobbing. Now, this is the real kicker. My mom's like, yeah, I saw a lot of vans driving up here. What? The bus driver specifically said he wouldn't drive his van up to the top of the mountain, and that's how we got into this mess. Well, it turns out there's a Mount Tabor shuttle service where you pay a few shekels and can get driven up the mountain. It's really not intended to be a mountain that people casually hike up. So we flag down a shuttle driver and pay the ticket fee and get driven down the mountain. It was a very delightful ending. We make it down to the van where my dad is standing with a few of my youngest siblings who couldn't make it up. They just turned around right away. And the tour guide, of course, is sitting there with his coffee like, oh yeah, wasn't that a delight? Sure, sure. (sighs) We ended up not finishing out our time touring with him for some obvious reasons. So I never knew what the top of Mount Tabor held. I never really knew what its significance even was. That is not until I went back a year later with Tory-eyed Aaron, whom you all know, and the greatest bus driver in the land of Israel, Mikael. Mikael also drives a 15-passenger van, but he was happy to take us to the top and expertly navigate the roads of Mount Tabor. I hope that story provided some comic relief on our way over to Mount Tabor here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We're now here at the bottom of the mountain, and thankfully I will be flagging down a few of the vans to take us to the top, so no crazy hikes here. No sob stories. We're going to take in all the site has to offer and have fun doing it. So go ahead and hop out of the bus and meet me over at the shuttle van ticket counter. All right, hop into those vans. We'll have to separate because we're a large group, but enjoy looking out the windows as we ascend Mount Tabor. See you at the top. Okay, here we are, the peak of Mount Tabor. Let's head over to a lookout that gives us a 360 view of the Jezreel Valley, and we're going to first talk about the Old Testament significance of this site. Specifically, we're going to turn to the Book of Judges like we did with Samson, although he's a few chapters after where we're about to look. In Judges 4, we learn about Deborah, or Deborah, as you might hear in English, a prophetess and a judge of Israel. And in fact, she was the only female judge of Israel. And then we also learn about Barak, a general and leader of Israel's armies. Deborah summons Barak to her, and here's where Mount Tabor comes in. So listen to part of Judges 4. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord the God of Israel commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak gives Deborah an ultimatum in response. Either she will go out with Barak to the battle, or he won't go at all. Now he's probably testing her out of fear. Is God really wanting him to go against a much stronger army who has chariots? See, having chariots in this time almost guaranteed a victory against Israel's simple foot soldiers? Deborah responds with a pretty powerful answer. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman pull on to that detail. We'll return there in a moment. Next, Sisera goes after Barak because he hears that Barak has gone up to Mount Tabor and is preparing for a battle. Again, Deborah is resolved here. She commands Barak up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And then the text in Judges 4.14 says, So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So the Israelite forces gathered right here on this mountain where we now stand, Mount Tabor, and then they descended from potentially where we're standing to go meet Sisera, the foe. That's pretty significant. Of course, Deborah's words came true. Judges says that the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Now it's really emphasizing, starting with the Lord routed Sisera, that the battle and the victory belonged to God. Barak didn't beat a much stronger army with better technology on his own. It was completely a miracle of the Lord. Now, this next part doesn't really pertain to Mount Tabor, but it's so good. It's such a good story that I have to finish this cliffhanger for you all. While Barak and his army are able, with the help of the Lord, to kill the men of Sisera's army, Sisera manages to escape. He goes to the tent of a Kenite, a friend and the woman there is Yael. Like I said, Sisera thinks this is a friend. Emphasis on thinks. He even feels comfortable asking for a drink from Yael, and then he goes to sleep in her tent and tells Yael to not let anyone know that he's there. See, Sisera knows that he's just lost his army, and he's the one in the weak position. Well, Yael, supposedly a friend, ends up doing something unexpected. She takes a tent peg and hammers it into Sisera's head while he's asleep. And that's how he died. So Sisera and his army were wiped out, and it all started here on Mount Tabor. Take a look around this mountain and take that in. You're standing where that literally happened. Well, I also promised that there was a New Testament connection to this place. So let's explore that now here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. So the New Testament aspect of this place is that the transfiguration with Jesus and his disciples likely happened here, at least according to tradition. It's certainly up for debate, though, and, and some scholars will take the position that the transfiguration happened on another mountain. And that's mainly because the mountain upon which the transfiguration took place is never mentioned by name in the Bible but Christian tradition very strongly supports Mount Tabor as the location of the transfiguration, with early Christian writers like Origen saying as much, and pilgrims often going to Mount Tabor because they thought it was where the transfiguration happened. I will be upfront, however, and say that it is also likely the transfiguration happened at a place called Mount Hermon. We looked at Mount Hermon from a distance when we were at both Tel Dan, where Abraham's gate was, and the nearby Caesarea Philippi, which is where Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. That's the last geographical marker we get in the Gospel of Matthew before the Transfiguration happens. In other words, we know that Jesus and the disciples were in the area of Mount Hermon, and then Matthew says that six days passed, and that's when the Transfiguration happens. So, yes, I, I grant it is possible that based on the fact that Matthew never gives us another location, Mount Hermon, which is in the vicinity of where Jesus and his disciples were at Caesarea Philippi, makes sense as the place of the transfiguration. Perhaps we're just supposed to infer that Mount Hermon is the closest mountain to Caesarea Philippi. But six days, which Matthew also mentions, is a good amount of time. There's no reason why Jesus and his disciples couldn't have made it from farther in the north to Mount Tabor, which is right next to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. That's really only about 40 miles, and for people that were on their feet all the time, of course walking was really the only means of transportation and sometimes horses and whatnot, 40 miles over six days is not a lot. And we also have to look at what the other Gospels say. For example, Mark chapter 9 says that the transfiguration happened, and then Jesus immediately passes through Galilee. But Mount Hermon isn't in Galilee, it's one of the most northern mountains in Israel, But Mount Tabor, on the other hand, is in the Galilee. And that's where we have to examine the Gospels as documents adding information to one another. Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I really do value traditions and, frankly, the likely accuracy of of people passing down events and their corresponding locations generation after generation. You know, mom tells daughter that this is where this happened. Daughter tells daughter where this has happened. Daughter tells son where this happened. It makes sense. You've heard me talk many times about why that concept of tradition has convinced me that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is the location of Christ's death. We've talked about that numerous times here on the Virtual Voyage. So I do believe Mount Tabor as the location of the Transfiguration makes sense, and so do other Christians. There's both a Franciscan Basilica of the Transfiguration over to your left, and then directly behind you is a Greek Orthodox Church both these churches are here marking the place of the transfiguration. Well, in our last few minutes up here, let's talk briefly about what the transfiguration is, because it's truly miraculous. Jesus goes up this mountain with Peter, James, and John, and then Moses and Elijah also appear on this mountain. So it's really like the eternal heavenly world comes and meets the earthly world those disciples got a taste of something we will only experience after our life here on earth is finished. You may remember that Peter says to Jesus, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I know so many people who have been confused by Peter saying that. Did he just think that Jesus would want to be shaded? Well, I am also going to posit that there's more at play here, and it has to do with a Jewish feast and holiday called Sukkot, more commonly known as the Feast of Booths, During this holiday, Jews build sukkahs, basically small huts, small tents. They live and eat there in the sukkah, sometimes even built right in their backyards in modern-day Israel or even in America or wherever Jews are at today. And the point is that the Jews commemorate the time the Israelites spent in the wilderness in their own huts, and they celebrate that God did deliver them from the wilderness that's exactly what leviticus 23 says and that's where god commanded the jews to practice sukkot it says this you shall dwell in booths for seven days all native israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that i made the people of israel dwell in booths when i brought them out of the land of egypt i am the lord your god okay so here's my take I think it's totally possible that Sukkot, which begins on the 15th day of the Jewish month of of Tishri, for reference that September 29th of this year, I think it's possible that Sukkot was happening during this time, and that's what prompted Peter to come up with the hut idea. As a practicing Jew, building his Sukkah was already on his mind when he was on this mountain with Jesus. Now, the only problem with this is that the Jews were commanded to go to Jerusalem for a few feasts, including the Feast of Booze, as Deuteronomy chapter 16 tells us. So why weren't the disciples and Jesus, all practicing Jews, in Jerusalem as per the commands of the Torah? I don't quite have an answer for you there. Well, we do know that another year Jesus was in Jerusalem for Sukkot. The Gospel of John chapter 7 states that. Specifically, it says that Jesus did not immediately want to go to Jerusalem for the start of the Feast, because he knew that the Jews wanted to kill him. But he did tell his disciples to go to Jerusalem for Sukkot. And then John says that about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple. So he did make it to Jerusalem for Sukkot, as per the command in Leviticus to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Well, here's another thought for why Peter brings up building the Sukkah idea here on Mount Tabor. Perhaps it was around the time of Sukkot, and Peter was thinking about his own Sukkah, that he needed to start getting ready soon, or perhaps the sukkah that he had just finished living in. It's a theory I have. But now it's your turn to wrestle with this and come to a conclusion. So I challenge you to search the scriptures and think about these two things. One, did the transfiguration happen on Mount Tabor, as the tradition says? Remember, that's where we're standing right now, and you can see how many people come here for that very reason— and even the churches that have been erected because of the site being believed to be the traditional spot of the transfiguration. And then number two, why is it that Peter suggested building tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? Was it because the transfiguration happened during Sukkot? But if so, why wasn't Jesus in Jerusalem like the Torah commands? I I struggle with that. Or maybe was the transfiguration just generally around the time of Sukkot, leading Peter to make the tent suggestion because the Feast of Booze was on his mind. Well, I'll leave you to wrestle with these questions as we leave the top of Mount Tabor, hop back on the shuttle vans to get to the bottom, and then get back on the bus to head to our next adventure. But take one last look around the top of this incredible mountain. It was significant in the Old Testament and later in the New Testament. And now here we stand, Able to read those stories, those historical accounts, and think about them again with a totally new perspective. That's just what happens when we travel in the land of the Bible. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventures in the land of Israel.